We return to our discussion on bringing light into darkness with T.J. Masters, and we pick up during our discussion on Cuban education relative to other nations of the developing world. So, so here, you know, I mean, and you can create all this conspiracy theory that oh, they're they're you know they have some kind of prejudicial way of well, this is UNESCO. I mean, what are you going to believe? I mean, yeah. So let me let me respond yeah, to that because sure. it sounds like what you're describing to me is that even in spite of the United States imposed embargo, and in spite of the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1989, that Cuba has somehow managed to figure out some pretty basic human necessities that uh, perhaps other countries that the United States have meddled in do not do as well. And certainly even in the United States, we don't have those kinds of track records Mm -hmm. with education and health care. So I would imagine that there are some ideological lines that could probably be drawn depending on where you fall on the political spectrum. What could we attribute that success to in Cuba? Well, it is the primacy of political will. It is the revolutionary actualization of all men and women are created equal and should be treated as such. And the primacy of humanitarian interests of everyone, regardless of race, regardless of class and personal wealth. It depends on how you want to define democracy. I mean, for me, it's pretty straightforward. To me, democracy is predicated on basic needs being met and people having an opportunity there. You know, when I was down in Cuba, of course, this is all before... I think 2015 was the last time I was down there. But, you know, so they they don't have hardly any hard cash there, right? But when you're growing up as a child in Cuba and you want to go to a world-class aquarium, it's like one or two pesos, which is when I was there, I pesos about five cents. That was the value, value, okay? Or if you wanted to go to a national ballet, I mean a national, not a national, an international ballet. I mean, like something that, I mean, I'm not even into ballet. My mom was a dancer. But something, but something that that is at the apex. Yeah, culture, high art, right? Two, two or three pesos. Now I had to pay, wow. you know, ten bucks because I was a gringo. <laughs> but but the Cuban kid. But that so it's important because that's part of the education. You don't get educated by just reading books and stuff. You get educated through culture and in cultural events a baseball game is one or two pesos you know i went that type of thing is different but getting to your the issue there i think i just kind of knee jerk back to maslow if we have such incredible high poverty rates throughout the world and even in our own country that where where in cuba tj it's not just that their infant mortality rates are so low it's that their infant mortality rates are almost uniform across the 14 provinces of Cuba. Here, we have a, a higher infant mortality rate, but we also have a two to three times higher rate for African Americans. So the egalitarian nature of whatever is the challenges come to Cuba, they all do it equally. That's why it was so offensive, I think, to Fidel Castro when he was being accused of having a bank account and being one of the richest people in the world, according to Forbes. Uh, He immediately addressed that and such. So to my mind, one of the things that could describe this kind of both the human, the overall human, holistic human benefit, but also some of the price, (laughs) the price phenomena that you're describing, you know, some people might call this communism. Some people might call this socialism. What I would describe, what you're describing to me, is just a deprioritization of profit. 
yeah. deprioritization of capital, right? It's not about accumulating wealth. It's about, and you know, in the United States, we tend to think of the United States dollar as the most powerful buying tool in the world. And maybe it is, but when you're telling me a world-class ballet or world-class aquarium for five cents, yeah, five or ten cents or to me, to my mind, I start to question some of the things that, some of the amounts that we pay for the things that we get in the United States. And a great example is healthcare. Why is healthcare so expensive? Right. <laughs> the, the only real explanation for that is prioritization of profit. Well, and then you can look at the unequal outcomes in our country. Brookings Institute. We've cited some of their work that's been replicated in other studies, but. People born in 1950, if you're born in the top 10% of income earners, guess what? You're going to have 14 more years average on your lifespan than someone that's at the bottom 10%. This is according to their 2016 article in research, which replicates similar findings by other reputable researchers. So when freedom is translated into, I'm free to get a Mercedes Benz, so are you. But guess what? We might not have that money to get that Mercedes Benz, even though we have that freedom. Is it really a freedom of nobody but a small group <laughs> of people can, can get that. So that's absolutely that's another aspect. Let me just say one other thing, if I could. It's interesting because in, I think it was 2004 or 2003, when I was there, they were doing a lot of reforestation in Cuba. There was an article that I came across that was consistent with my visit to some of these agricultural areas it was an editorial back in 2007. It was a, a Living Planet Report, 2006. It was published by the World Wildlife Fund, if you want to you know, hunt it down. But it, it turned out that Cuba was the only country in the world that enjoyed sustainable development, according to the criteria of the World Wildlife Fund. An HDI value, Human Development Index, of more than 0.8 is considered to be a high human development and a footprint lower than 1.8 hectares per person, which is the average biocapacity available per person on the planet, denotes sustainability at the global level. Among all countries, only Cuba qualified in both areas. This is a revolutionary country, and I think its deeds reflect those visions. And, and we detailed their medical internationalism program that has touched and impacted more than 160 nations of the world since shortly after the revolutionary victory. So if you're interested, you can request a link to last week's show by emailing me at pgatos00 at gmail.com. I wanted Yeah, hold on. Can you yeah. can you just uh, ruminate on that for yeah. a minute? When you say this is a revolutionary country, I think it's important for people to understand what you mean by that. Well, for me, what I have come to appreciate is the principles that I see in the behavior of the leaders and of the country itself. Like, l let me give you just a couple of examples, right? For instance, everyone knows about Guantanamo. Mm -hmm. well, I don't want to go into the whole history of Cuba, but basically Cuba fought Spain back in the 1800s. In 1868 to 1878 was one revolution, and then it percolated back up in 1895. And by 1898, they were running Spain out of Cuba, okay? They were defeating them. They were on the run. That's when you had the bombing of the Maine, and the United States came in. And then when the United States came in, they helped put into government a particular government that, 
that misrepresentative that was that was kind of bought off in a sense. In that their priority interests were not Cubans, but U.S. interests. And made agreements that were binding, treaty agreements. One of those agreements had to do with a perpetual lease on Guantanamo Bay that the United States right. would leave. And that, that was back in 1903. You know, Thomas Estrada Apollo was the president of that time. And then in, in 1934, under Machado, another very corrupt leader in Cuba, they reaffirmed the lease. But at the end of the day, they were paying $2,000 in U.S. gold coins per year for the U.S. to stay there. And it turns out that, so when you, if you fast forward to 1959, under Castro, they somehow apparently may have by mistake cashed one of the rent checks but you know here you are and since that that one check the government has never cashed any of the other checks because they never they never recognized the deal they said this is not even representative of our people this was your government you put really? in power and therefore we do not recognize this agreement it was not a sovereign choice but of course, the United States is so strong and overwhelming that, you know, we don't care what Cuba says. And they said something like that the, uh, the government of Cuba believes it to be a violation of Article 52 of 1969 Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, which declares a treaty void if its conclusion has been procured by the threat or use of force. However, the article of the same document says in the Vienna Convention that that's it shall not act at retroactively. <laughs> so in a legal sense, the United States has a defense, so you can't act retroactively. But in a principled yeah, sense... It's kind in, of grandfathered in. Right, but in a principled sense, it, it's pretty obvious what went on there. So that's one principle, that they didn't cash any... Uh, I, I just felt that it was like a principle act. You know, well, we're not going to cash it. We don't recognize it. Therefore, we're not going to take your money for the last 25, 30 years. The other thing, there's another big mistaken presentation of Cuba, like they indiscriminately killed thousands of people. When the revolutionary forces came to power. But they, many of the tactics that the rebel army used were irregular. Many of the people that became revolutionary rebels in the rebel army were on the Batista side until they realized, you know, they get captured, they weren't getting killed, and they were, they were being asked, you know, why are you defending this government, this deal, this Batista government's killed 20,000 people. And so they had these war criminals, murderers, and torturers. These people were killed, but they had trials. But the claim that people were indiscriminately round up and shot, you know, without any due process, uh, just does not jive with um, so much of the eyewitness accounts and writings that I I've come across. So the principled behavior was when you captured an enemy combatant, you did not kill them, but tried to reason with them and gain their confidence to join your side. That was part of this irregular warfare that Fidel Castro spoke of and was common to the Cuban revolutionary victory experience. Another one was the one about Forbes that we already talked about. Fidel had $900 million in wealth. Right. They say Fidel has, you know, richest guy says, well, show it to me and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I will quit in a heartbeat. Another one, last week we were talking about Angola and the heroic, right. uh, the heroic uh, defeat of uh, the apartheid South African government. And apparently one... Which I learned listening to that episode, just to bring any listeners up to speed, that uh, Cuba supported uh, since, since support in the form of what? Troops? Money? What are we talking about here? Everything. Not money. Uh, they don't have any money. It was troops. <laughs> it, 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 was, it was tactical right, support. Air support. 
Yeah, they built. They built. Uh, yeah, they built airfields. They, it, which led to the first, you know, defeat in the history of the South African apartheid army. Got to got to put in a recommendation for last week's episode. If any of this is knowledge to you listening now, so there's some great audio that Pedro has of Nelson Mandela talking about the Cuban support and the Cuban influence in fighting apartheid in South Africa. Fascinating. Right, and we juxtapose that with the number of sanctions they were they were trying to sanction that South African army and government, but guess who kept on vetoing the sanctions? The U.S. <laughs> so we were supporting <laughs> apartheid South Africa. But anyhow, I, where I wanted to go with that is that one of the leaders of the military there, a Cuban general, Arnaldo Ochoa. He, you know, there, there were all these claims that uh, that Cuba was involved with, I think, drug running and those types of things. And, you know, I... I as someone that studied all that stuff, you know, began to just, you know, brush it off as, yeah, here we go again, you know, no evidence, da, da, da. Well, it turned out there was right. evidence, and there was a guy, and he was a leader. A Cuban general, Arnaldo Ochoa. And he, uh, he initially denied it, but then it finally admitted it. And him and a couple of other guys, they were executed, TJ, that, that it was considered the greatest betrayal that we that Cuba lost 2,077 servicemen in Angola, and this guy was out not paying full attention to his duties and his job. Therefore, he was betraying the revolutionary forces he was leading. Another example was Fidel Castro himself. We're all familiar with the Bay of Pigs invasion in 1961, April, but when the forces attacked Cuba, there's a famous picture of Fidel in a tank responding at the battlefield with artillery and explosions abounding uh, and officers pleading Fidel to get out of the line of fire. Uh, but Fidel knew that the Cuban revolution itself was at stake and was risking his life, as he expected everyone else to, to defend the homeland. If you visit Cuba, you will see placards, homeland or death. These are not empty words of marketing. This is the principle that Fidel's actions emulated. Our president sent people to unjust wars without ever getting in harm's way. Th those, are the wow. kind, those are the kinds of principles. And j just one more, I think, and we talked about it last week a little bit. In 1953, there was the... 26th of July attempt. 1952 is a coup, right? By the way, Fidel Castro was running for office. Running under the Orthodox Party. And him and other people were going to win those elections. But Batista executed a coup because he was going to lose the election. Took power, recognized by the United States. By 1953, Fidel and, 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 a, and a number of folks were going to try to take over the Moncada garrison on the other end of the island and start this revolution thing. It was a a massive failure militarily, but politically it was a very important, it's actually the most important celebration event in Cuba, even more the, than the revolutionary victory in, of the 1st of January of 1959. But when Fidel was in prison waiting to be tried, he defended himself. He wrote this paper, which everyone, many people will remember, was called History Will Absolve Me, so you can read the words for yourself. And he was talking about what they were going to do. Upon the successful taking of the Moncada garrison. They were going to go to the hills. And initiate our revolutionary takeover of the country. And upon succeeding. So we, we were going to address illiteracy. We were going to get people, kids, you know, all of these illnesses through their bare feet. were getting into the body. You know, we we're going to 
create a healthcare system. We're going to, we said, illiteracy issues are going to be addressed. Uh, land reform is going to be addressed. Well, the principal part about all that is if you fast forward to January 1 of 1959. Some six years later. Within the first two years post of revolutionary victory, when there was so much going on, they fulfilled those primary promises. Literacy, health care, running water, land reform. Bam, bam, bam. You know, that, that's, that's something you don't see in our political uh, deal where people will make promises, but once they become president, yeah. uh, they, don't, they don't follow through. So I guess getting back to your question, what is a revolutionary? A revolutionary, in my mind, is someone that has the highest loyalty to principled behavior. What's right is right, what's wrong is wrong, and they always seek to do the right thing. They don't get sucked into, you know, kind of the material shortcut. As their primary driver, they relentlessly confront unfairness and oppression and yeah. those types of things, which is so easy to do. I mean, you have if you have a family to support, it's really hard to say no to a little bit of compromise or corruption if you, and you start kind of whittling away yeah, at some well, of these principles. Well, you know, the reason that I ask that question is because you could describe America as a revolutionary country, mm-hmm. but we were revolutionary 200-some-odd years ago, many generations removed from those revolutionary actions, And, of course, now many of those actions, especially the ones that we wrote up in our own Constitution, are frequently the source of scrutiny and argument and dissension and partisanship. And so what I wanted to ask you is, now Cuba is a couple of generations removed from its probably most profound revolution. Where does that leave the Cuban people of today? If people are, in fact, protesting the Cuban government for the way they've responded to the COVID pandemic, to the way they're responding to climate change crises, for example, increased hurricanes and storms, have the Cuban people lost their revolutionary spirit or are they finding a different way to express it? What do you think about that? Well, you know, one of the things when I was down there over the years that I noticed every year I was down there were the most amazing international forums that were being hosted in Cuba, whether it was on climate change, whether it was on development in third world nations. It's a completely different prioritization of values that occur in any culture. Each culture has its own deal. So I believe that there's not been an abandonment. As recently, the turn of the century, when everyone was talking about, you know, everyone trying to get out of Cuba, the estimates from the CIA were that were that 8 to 10 million out of, out of the 11 million wanted to stay there. And I think, you know, that's another kind of, of these image-making kind of things that, that I was alluding to, that we, actu- yeah. we actually created laws, you know, the Cuban Adjustment Act that was adopted by Congress back in 1966 under the LBJ administration, it actually changed the legal status of Cuban immigrants compared to other immigrants coming to the United States and granted them political asylum. You know, they they got, you know, unique immigration status. They got immediate privileges that no other group got. You know, you had automatic permanent residence status. Uh, You know, there's that wet foot, dry foot deal, right? So, Meanwhile, we had an immigration agreement with Cuba years later, and at the time, uh, which allowed 20,000 visas to Cubans, but we only released 500. (laughs) So you get 500 visas, and then you say, look, if you get a wet foot, dry foot on, on our land, you get all these benefits, including welfare and unemployment and this and that and all this other stuff. And what happened is it creates 
a lot of people jumping on a raft, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Not to say, look, everyone wants to come to the United States. But what people fail to appreciate that in 2004, for instance, the net migration rate for Cubans was negative 1.58. That means more people were, were, leaving, Cuba. Were, were, were leaving Cuba than were going to Cuba, that type of thing. But guess what? What we're, what we're not told is that Guatemala had a higher rate than Cuba, Honduras, Bahamas, Dominican Republic, Haiti, El Salvador, Mexico, Jamaica. Despite the fact that it was only Cubans that had the types of incentives to come to the United States that we just described. Because yeah. all we have under the microscope is the country we're trying to destroy. Yeah, the last time I talked to you, I had mentioned that I grew up in Florida and remember the Elian Gonzalez right. controversy. And we were talking about how uh, even in the narrative that Americans were exposed to in the news media did not tell the whole story of why he was even brought over and, and, uh, and for what reason and whether or not, you know, that was, was even desired by the family to stay in America or to go back to Cuba. Right. And to that point, TJ, Cubans I talk to uniformly adore the American public. They say well, if the American public knows what's going on, like that particular event where the father and the mother are divorced, right, and the, and the kid loses his mother to death, and the father wants his son back, when the United States yeah. public figured all that out, they said, well, yeah, he should get it. Get, you know, but, you know, it's also interesting that 89% of the Cubans in the States are white. Or light-complected. This was as of 2004, and, and uh, the island is 60% black. So, yeah, that's uh, an interesting point. Those are some other issues. Okay, so, Pedro, I hear you telling me that Cubans hold Americans in very high esteem, and as someone who grew up in Florida who has benefited from Cuban culture, Cuban music, Cuban food. I'm someone who holds Cuba in high esteem. And frankly, in my lifetime, I've never met another person who has a bad opinion or has a prejudgment or prejudice against Cuba. And I think that for a large portion of the current United States population, the our relationship with Cuba is somewhat inscrutable. And I know for, for myself, as a someone who loves to travel the world, who loves to experience and celebrate other cultures, I would prefer that we had a better relationship with a country as diverse and luminous as Cuba. So, Pedro, what do you? what is the future of Cuban-American relations, and in your estimate, and what do you think that we as normal Americans can do to help, you know, build these bridges? Unfortunately, I think, for the reasons we've discussed, that we have to extinguish the Cuban model, that investment capital doesn't get nearly the type of return it would get if more and more countries adopted Cuban-like priorities. I think what was really important to consider is that the embargo, first of all, it's not an embargo, it's a blockade, because an embargo is just when one country says, I don't want to trade with you. But when you have laws that can create sanctions against third countries for trading with Cuba, extraterritorial, that becomes a, a blockade. And aside yeah. from that, I think what's more important is the informational blockade. As long as you do not allow people like yourself and the ones that you love to go down to Cuba, check it out for yourself and figure some of this stuff out firsthand, then our images are created not from our own experiences, but from the information made available and not made available to us on the media and other informational pathways. 
And you might say that that's why the two of us are here, to uh, bring light into some of that darkness. That's exactly right. That's a good place to end it right there. Hey, man, this was a great conversation. I, I feel like I learned a lot. Well, good. Well, thank you for participating, and thanks for your ideas, and I learned a lot from your comments as well. Okay, we'll see everybody next week. Stay tuned for some overnight music, but you'll have to switch on over to koop.org. But first, as we do at the end of every Bringing Light into Darkness show, we take you out with Land of Naivety. Yeah.